Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Ball. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For specialized and customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com or give me a call. Well, today we're talking about the office sector and what a great sector. And with everything going on with the economy, all the great news and some hiccups, people are curious. What is the office market doing? What should we expect moving forward? We're going to share some tips for investments. We're going to share some tips for users. We're going to share some strategies for site uh, location activity. So uh, please welcome my first guest. It's Jim Costello. He's Senior VP with RC Analytics, and he's joining us on Skype. Jim, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me here today. Jim, uh, one of the things that... uh, is in the news today that people are probably curious about is the Chrysler building there in New York, right? What's uh, what's going on? Why are we selling this icon? Yeah, I've got a little model of it right here from uh, uh, Bob uh, here, his collection. Uh, it, it's interesting that you, buildings like this don't come up for sale all that often. It's an iconic uh, building, uh, but you know, there's a lot of questions of what what happens next. Uh, while it's an iconic building, you know, it is a little bit older. And there is some new construction coming into Manhattan. And so the process of underwriting, I think a lot of people are going to be sharpening their pencils trying to figure out what they might pay for it. It's got a complicated ground lease structure as well with uh, the payments for the ground lease going up uh, sharply in 2019. And so that's going to change uh, how people think about it as well. But there's not too many of these things that come up. And uh, we have over uh, since January 2017 – uh, only 19, uh, 800,000 square foot plus buildings in Manhattan have come up for sale. Uh, so it's a two year period effectively. And in that time period, there were uh, the winners who have been participating in purchases of those assets have totaled about 30 different teams. It means a lot of capital and in going into joint ventures because they all want a piece of this market, but it's hard to access. So there's a lot to balance out in this transaction. Yeah. How old is that building and, and how long is that land lease? Do you know? Uh, the building is 90 years old, okay. uh, looking pretty good for 90. <laughs> and I, uh, the land lease now expires, uh, to my understanding, off um, uh, sometime after I'm dead. <laughs> whenever, whenever that is. <laughs> okay. Well, you be careful out there on the streets today, okay? Because we <laughs> want that land lease to last. <laughs> well, that certainly does complicate it. We're, we're closing a sale now. Uh, involving part of the property in a land lease, and uh, it, it makes it more fun for, for us as brokers. Well, another thing that uh, seems to be thought of by the real estate industry when it comes to office properties is uh, that the central business district is where it's all happening, you know, with the Chrysler building in the, in the large cities in town. Um, but what do you see when you really look into the numbers? Yeah, and, and that, that dichotomy, looking at CBD office space versus suburban space, early in this cycle, uh, everybody and their brother, when they're investing, they wanted to be in the CBD locations. There was this thought that let's buy office buildings in the CBDs. That's where the millennials want to live and work. Uh, and that's almost 10 years ago at this point where that story was so uh, starting to take hold. Uh, you add 10 years to you know what kids in their 20s were back then. Uh, they're in their 30s now. They're getting older. They're pairing up, having kids, moving to the suburbs. And, and you know, combine that with the fact that to the extent that we've built housing in the last decade, it's mostly been in suburban locations. Hmm. So 
we're starting to see a shift there on the demographics of the labor force into more suburban locations. And uh, deal volume now is starting to follow for the suburban office market. Last couple of years, the suburban office market, normally suburban and CBD volume are pretty close to each other. Uh, it's a, a growing divergence between the two. Suburban office volumes, you don't have final figures in for 2018 yet. We're probably somewhere 78 to 80 billion for transaction activity versus something like 50, 52 billion for CBD locations. That's so it's a healthy difference. That's interesting. And as far as the volume of actual larger, nicer buildings, uh, there's probably a higher percentage of those buildings in the CBD, right? Well, there is that. You know, uh, you're not going to have too many uh, iconic buildings in a lot of suburban locations. A lot of suburban locations are more uh, utilitarian. But also that's changing in terms of what we mean by suburbs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the geography is one thing, but some of the newer developments in suburban locations have a lot more amenity structures. Uh, developers building urban features within a suburban area. Buildings in suburban areas that have walkability and access to transit are seeing much stronger price appreciation for prices well above the 2007 peak levels at this point versus other suburban office buildings uh, that are uh, struggling a little bit to come back to that previous peak. Yeah. So is suburban office potentially in some markets where the opportunity lies? I think so in, in the sense also of the yield opportunity. So you've got two factors I think they are driving capital to look at opportunities of suburban locations. There's that demographic wave issue. You have to chase where the workers are going because that's where firms will go. Uh, but also uh, average cap rates are, are uh, 100, 150 basis points higher in suburban locations. And that, that hunger for yield worldwide uh, can uh, uh, drive investors to look for opportunities in those locations. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, so what did you see for cap rate trends uh, in 2018 as, as you're wrapping up numbers there? You know, what's what's interesting, I, I get that question a lot. People are worried about what's been happening with interest rates and will it translate through to higher cap rates. And so far, there's no evidence of that. We Now, the interest rates themselves have been very volatile. You know, they went up uh, in, in the fourth quarter, hit a peak around 2.2%, and then they plummeted down 2.6, uh, flirting with 2.5 the other day. Uh, so cap rates... Uh, it's not like trading a bushel of soybeans uh, on uh, you know the options exchange. It's it's something that yeah, the deals take a long time to close. The underwriting is a very thoughtful process, and so cap rates just haven't moved yet in response to that turmoil, and so they've been somewhat flat. And people, I think, are taking a little bit of a wait and see attitude. Interesting. And it seems like we, we sell a lot of medical office buildings in our shop, and it seems like traditionally we see the cap rates being a little bit higher, a little bit higher returns for investors on the medical versus the regular office. Is some of that maybe based because there was so much CBD uh, property selling at some of the lower cap rate sales? What are you seeing today for office building cap rates versus medical office? Well, in, in, in theory, you should always have a higher cap rate for a property with uh, more management issues than, than fewer management issues. You're going to try and compensate somebody for some of the risk uh, involved in the higher capex issues, perhaps. But the, 
medical office, uh, I you know would imagine that there's probably uh, we well, we have definitely seen a faster pace of growth from medical office sales. That's something that has been helping to lift the suburban office sales. Uh, and part of that is people trying to get into the demographic wave of uh, more demand for medical office period as the baby boomers age. And so that could provide a counter uh, countervailing influence to maybe uh, compress cap rates for medical office relative to the market overall. So would you expect those cap rates then between regular office, medical office in 2019 to sort of uh, level out then? Uh, similar? You know, if, if that force of the argument around the demographic wave is stronger, uh, I'd expect it to narrow. Okay. What do you expect for cap rates in 2019? I mean, you, you said it, interest rates have been going up. What do you expect now, especially with some of the recent turmoil uh, in the stock market? We have a government shutdown. What would be your guess of cap rates in 2019 trend-wise for office? I mean, here's, here's the, the thing. Uh, there, there is more uncertainty today. You know, every day the government stays closed, the, the amount of uncertainty un- increases. Uh, it creates challenges in the financial markets. It creates, it creates challenges in real estate for financing projects in, in some cases. And, and so that uncertainty you know, has uh, two effects. When there's uncertainty in the financial markets, people flock to safe assets, such as the 10-year treasury, which might help to bring that down a bit. Uh, the other thing that people look at is the safety of real estate. Because when you're buying an office building, you know what you're getting. You're getting an income stream tied to a certain collection of tenants, and you can look into uh, their credit rating. So that might help if if you have more turmoil in the stock markets, you have more uncertainty coming from D.C. Uh, it may have a perverse impact in terms of making more money look at real estate. Right. Uh, frankly, I think it would be better if more money looked at real estate not because of uncertainty, but because of thoughts of stability in our public policy, stability in the economy, expectations for growth. But uh, we may have capital looking at the real estate sector uh, you know, for, uh, in some respects, the wrong reasons this year. Right. And when you think about the, the shutdown, its impact on the office market, uh, someone might think it's going to be just around maybe D.C. or areas like that. But you have a, a lot of companies that that do work with the uh, government that uh, could be impacted here, right? Yeah, the federal government is not just D.C. It's, it's worldwide, frankly. Uh, but the, uh, you know, think about the follow-on effects. Right now, they're talking about uh, this upcoming Friday being the first day when some of the federal workers don't get paid. Uh, that has follow-on effects to every little diner and retail establishments and landlord who's not getting their rent checks. Uh, that's going to take a bite out of the economy and uh, lead to some uncertainty in, in these areas. And then the longer it stays uh, in place, that's going to impact uh, the office market to some of those companies face some retrenchment as uh, uh, GSA leases maybe come up and maybe then there's some uncertainty about what happens next. Financing projects uh, uh, is going to be a problem for some sectors. Uh, FHFA stuff and the apartment sector is going to have challenges. So the longer we have this uncertainty hanging over there, the more damage it's going to do to the real economy. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a 
a deal that's uh, been stalled because it needs SBA as a, a company buying a building and they're getting the SBA financing and it's kind of on hold and you know, that stuff starts to trickle. Um, I want to get your idea, I know if I ask you this, I don't know if I've, I understand your your estimate on cap rates for 2019 for office. So what what was the kind of the trend in 18 for cap rates number wise for office? And do you expect that to remain flat in 19? I mean, what, what do you foresee? Yeah, cap rates were flat in 2018. In 2019, you know, the the thought at the moment is that the the Fed maybe will not be doing as many raises of uh, the, the Fed funds rate, um, that we might be at the end of that. There may not be the pressure on the longer end of the yield curve. In fact, inflation expectations in the last month and a half have really tanked. You know, we had higher inflation expectations into October, November, uh, but they've tanked of late. And if you have a higher pace of inflation, that's what drives investors to seek a higher return on the long end of the yield curve to kind of cover themselves for those those risks. So if inflation expectations are tanking, uh, I'm not going to see the same sort of upward pressure on interest rates, and therefore you're not going to see the same upward pressure on cap rates. We may be in for uh, another flat year on cap rates. Okay. Well, that's interesting. What are some of the other aspects of the economy uh, that could impact the office sector? You know, we have a lot of co-working uh, growth, especially there in New York and in other, in other cities. Uh, we have uh, people are supposed to be working at home these days and working home more from, from, uh, from home. Any of these aspects uh, you think could impact office sector moving forward? Two things to digest there. First, the other risks broadly. There are other risks. And then the co-working. Let's start with the co-working. Uh, WeWork is uh, trying to change their label, become something else. Uh, we Company, I think was the name. Uh, uh, to be more than just office use. And this is coming after SoftBank is not going to come through with as much money as they had initially promised. So there's a lot of people kind of looking at that uh, with a bit of shred and fraud, thinking that, uh, that they've had their comeuppance. We'll see where that goes. Uh, but it's, it's certainly the case that for a lot of smaller firms, uh, it doesn't make sense to get their own 5,000 square foot or smaller office at this point. Uh, you know, whether uh, it's WeWork or somebody else who follows that business model, I think that kind of pooled resource of a co-working location is a model that in some way, shape or form that will continue to live on. Um, now, uncertainty broadly, uh, you know, there are other things besides the government shutdown. And again, it goes to kind of policy coming out of D.C., uh, the trade war stuff that we've been talking about with China. Uh, that is is up in the air as well. And what happens next there? Uh, and, and what's what's distressing about all of this is that none of it's necessary. You know, it is you know, government policy generating the uncertainty. You remove those sources of uncertainty and suddenly you could have inflation expectations picking up. You could have businesses looking for uh, productive uh, sources of growth. Uh, the fundamentals of the economy, absent the uncertainty, I think are okay. Jim, what do you think about the investor interest in the office sector 
moving forward now and into 2019. When you compare it to other sectors, it seems like multifamily is still a darling cycle. Everyone loves it. Everyone loves industrial. Where does office come into to play today, uh, risk-wise and, and appetite-wise for investors? I mean, again, we don't have our final 2018 figures in yet, but it looks like the office sector in total will have a down year for 2018 with less steel volume than in 2017. It's the only major property sector where that's going to be the case. Uh, part of the issue is that the other major property sectors uh, were chock full of these entity level transactions in 2018, where somebody's buying not just a property, but buying a whole company at a time so that they can get at the assets that the company owns. And so that would be like you know the Westfield acquisition in the retail sector or DCT in the industrial sector. Uh, those multi-billion dollar deals until December of 2018, we didn't see any of those for the office sector. We suddenly saw two of them in the office sector in December. Uh, it's Brookfield and uh, uh, Forest City. You know, they had uh, some office space and uh, you know, select income REIT and uh, uh, you know, buying a government REIT. That that had uh, an impact as well. Uh, but still, even with that burst of uh, entity-level transactions this, in December, deal volume for the year still looks like it's going to be down. Uh, so, you know, the the uh, uh, comparison to other property sectors has just been a little bit uh, lighter, although I think part of that is, is just that dichotomy between CBD office and suburban office. All office stuff is not the same. And uh, the suburban office market is, uh, you know, relatively stronger than the CBD market. You know, tr again, traditionally, the numbers are pretty close between CBD and suburban and the split. And there's almost a $30 billion gap between the two uh, for 2018. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, uh, good luck with the uh, Chrysler building there. <laughs> uh, your model sells there on your table. Uh, <laughs> and no, that's not for sale. It's not mine. You're keeping that model, right? <laughs> All right, Jim. Thanks for joining us, sir. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right. And if you'd like more information uh, from Jim, check out their website. It's rcanalytics.com. And we will have more for you right after this break. Stay with us. I'm Michael Ball. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. The segment is brought to you by Byproxy.com. It's B-I-P-R-O-X-I. It's a new company. It's a free service to find properties or to list properties. And then for little bits of money, they also have marketing services. Do check them out. Well, today we're talking about the U.S. office market. Please welcome my next guest. It's John Boyd, and he's principal with the Boyd Company, and he's joining us in Studio One. John, thanks for being with us again. It's great to be here, Michael. Well, John, your company advises companies and cities and, and developers uh, on site selection around the country. So... Um, I want your opinion on HQ2, the way that ended up. What, did it surprise you? What did you think about it? It was a project like no other. We've never mm -hmm. seen a project, anything like HQ2, given the size of the project, 50,000 mm -hmm. workers, 8 million square feet of new office development, mm -hmm. and just the, the cachet of a company as exciting as Amazon, a company that's 
not only revolutionized retail, but also is in the, is in the process of revolutionizing industries like healthcare and multimedia and the fashion industry. Um, and just the, the way that HQ2 and the media attention elevated the business of site selection, the business of economic development, uh, was really uh, something quite special. What do you think about them dividing it up into two cities? That's not really a surprise. Uh, yeah. The idea of doing 50,000 highly paid workers in any market would have been a very onerous task for Amazon. Uh, what was surprising to me was how late in the curve they announced they were going to split this into uh, two headquarters. Think they did that on purpose? You know, obviously, the idea of leveraging incentives is, a, mm -hmm. is something Amazon has proven itself uh, to be very skilled at uh, over the years. Mm -hmm. But I think they, 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 they realized through due, due diligence, given record low unemployment rate that we have and just how tight labor markets are, that, mm -hmm. uh, that doing this in, in multiple sites uh, was the wisest way to, to, to do it. Now that we're here in, the, kind of in January of 19, um, and they've made their decision, how do you think it's impacting the, cit the cities they chose? Well, look, uh, the reality is uh, very few cities could accommodate uh, a project like this, given the, the transportation, the housing, the labor market uh, attributes that both Crystal City and Long Island City bring to the table. Well, I think what we're seeing is how this affects some of the, the, the 18 cities that lost out. They on didn't HQ2. get it, right? Uh, a lot of employers in these markets are breathing a sigh of relief that they're not going to have to compete with Amazon for, you know, for, this, uh, for highly paid workers. You think about cities that are... Uh, sparing them at all the all the benefits, all the PR benefits of being in the mix for HQ2 or HQ3, without actually having to deal with the transportation and the infrastructure demands and the labor market realities of competing with with one of the Amazon headquarters. The other thing that we're seeing is a lot of projects were put on hold, a lot of expansion and relocation projects were put on hold to see what Amazon was going to do. Mm. And in recent months, we've seen a number of high-profile headquarter relocations into Amazon top 20 finalists like Honeywell and Advanced Auto Parts, which recently relocated their headquarters to North Carolina, Norfolk Southern, uh, which recently relocated its headquarters uh, to Atlanta, uh, and, and smaller companies like Affirm, it's a leading uh, uh, alternative lender based in San Francisco, announced a 500 worker facility in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the type of project that was put on hold to see if, if, uh, if Amazon was gonna go to Pittsburgh. Yeah, interesting. So what do you think of the incentive packages that uh, Amazon received? I mean, the, the reality is incentives today are a necessary evil. Mm -hmm. High-cost states need incentives to be, uh, to be competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, there is a tremendous backlash. Uh, lawmakers and the public are very weary of giving large publicly traded companies like Amazon billions of dollars of incentives. I think one takeaway, quite frankly, I was surprised at how small the New York incentive package was versus other states. New York offered less than $3 billion. Uh, to put that in context, Pennsylvania offered roughly $5 billion. Newark, New Jersey offered $7 billion. Maryland offered $9 billion of incentives. Um, so my, my message to, to lawmakers is this. Before you want to have a conversation about the appropriateness of incentives, first do the heavy lifting and make your business climate more attractive. Cut taxes, fix your out-of-control pension crisis. Until you do that, high-cost states like New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut need incentives to be in the discussion for projects. Yeah. Good point. What do you think about opportunity zones and uh, the impact there? This will be a major uh, catalyst for development in poor urban areas like Newark, New Jersey, Chicago, Detroit, uh, South Florida. Uh, Atlanta can benefit from these opportunity zones as well. A lot of the nation's top developers are keyed uh, on these zones and, and will be taking advantage and, and doing a lot of repurposing activity 
um, to take advantage of some of these new incentives. And you think some of the uh, companies looking for locations uh, will also be looking for the, the opportunity zones? Absolutely. This is yeah. part of the calculus. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see a lot of urban cities put this into their narrative, their, mm -hmm. their industry attraction uh, narratives in the months ahead. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like to know where opportunity zones uh, are, just uh, give me a call or reach out to me some way I can give you some information on where they are. Another th question I think a lot of people have about uh, office relocations and corporate headquarters uh, is the co-working, right? Uh, that's really grown. What do you think about that? It really, it really has. Mm -hmm. You know, WeWork is really backed by a number of very strong financial powerhouses. T. Rowe Price, Goldman Sachs, or, uh, Fidelity are all major backers of, of WeWork. They're, they're now the largest occupier of Class A office space in Manhattan, 5.3 million square feet. This year they surpassed J.P. Morgan. Chase is the largest uh, occupier of mm. office space in Manhattan. That's very significant. Yeah. And, and if you look at uh, BLS statistics, one of the fastest growing areas of the job market is professional services, mm -hmm. architects, IT designers. Um, uh, and these are professionals that increasingly prefer the lower cost collaborative workspace model. Interesting. What do you think happens when we do have a downturn or, or the R word, a recession to the, those kind of spaces when tenants you know, can basically just stop paying? Well, that, that'll be a challenge that, that needs to be dealt with. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty optimistic on the economy yeah. uh, moving forward. We know about rising interest rates. I think that the Fed has been pretty transparent. I think a lot of that has already been baked into, uh, uh, into projections over the next year. The reality is uh, we have record low unemployment, rising wages, uh, uh, consumer confidence is at an all-time high, business confidence is very high. These are all positive indicators for the office market in 2019. And you're making me feel more positive, John. Thank you. <laughs> um, when it comes to companies picking a location uh, for their business, how much is the social impact involved? Tell us about that. That's a great question, Michael. Yeah. And you know, one of the, the takeaways from Amazon's HQ2 mm -hmm. site selection process is the emergence of this new site selection driver and its social impact. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with companies weighing weighing the the location decision with their brand and and their social standing mm -hmm. and this is especially true for companies that operate in highly regulated markets uh, industries like healthcare and multimedia and companies that bid on federal contracts mm -hmm. and companies concerned about antitrust issues these companies need the goodwill among the public and lawmakers mm -hmm. so investing in poor areas investing in diversity programs uh, paying attention to you know, investing in reentry uh, uh, efforts. All of this can can improve a company's social impact. Uh, and, and coincidentally, uh, Just Capital just released a report, and it looked at uh, a number of highly uh, of of uh, publicly traded companies. And UPS, which happens to be a client of ours, headquartered here in Atlanta, has the highest social just ranking uh, in in the U.S. today, which I think is interesting. Yeah, they're across the street over here, <laughs> so uh, that's interesting. You know, and you say that my. Uh, I know one person in the job market today, my daughter's graduating from UGA, and she is very concerned about the social impact of the company she works. And that seems to be really number one on her list of, of, of hey, who is this company? What are they all about? Right. Companies are in a battle for talent. Companies are only as good as their talent. Mm -hmm. And millennials and, and college graduates increasingly are paying attention to social impact when they decide what employers they want to work for. And it's also institutional investors. 75% mm -hmm. of, in, of institutional investors pay attention to a company's ethical business practices. Mm -hmm.
So that's another motivation for companies to, to, to factor this in, into their calculus. Yeah. John, what cities or states um, are doing it right to attract some of these great companies? The, the Carolinas, mm -hmm. uh, Georgia. I mean, Georgia has done a terrific job. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a surplus uh, in the state of Georgia. Uh, you have record low unemployment, 3.3% here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, Atlanta has been a model in terms of headquarter industry attraction. Mm -hmm. Atlanta is no longer just a capital of the South. It's mm -hmm. now a, a corporate capital in the world mm -hmm. uh, because of its focus on uh, uh, keeping taxes low, investing in workforce training programs, yeah, and, and, and being a, a mecca for uh, millennials to, 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 it's the third fastest growing city in, in the nation today. John, what size company, what number of employees, what type of impact do you need to have to, to a local economy to consider that you're going to get some incentives uh, from the local government? Companies today expect incentives. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if they meet a certain threshold, a hiring threshold, uh, you know, expect uh, serious negotiations. Uh, for those incentives to happen, I think. And, and, and the incentive packages that we craft today go beyond mere property tax abatements or job hiring credits. Mm -hmm. you know, we now aggressively negotiate for things like workforce training grants and investments in infrastructure. Yeah. And, and that's another way that you can sell an incentive package to an increasingly weary public, is that a lot of these investments serve a public good. Yeah. And they improve things like infrastructure and workforce training programs, which make the, the market not only attractive for the specific company, but also for small businesses and entrepreneurs. How big a business does it need to be? Like, I want to open an office in New York, a 2,500 square foot real estate office. I'm obviously not getting any incentives. I'm going to hire 10 people. You know, how big do you need to right. be? It's typically, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of workers mm -hmm. uh, and what markets deem high growth mm -hmm. industries like biotech, uh, you know, wages have to re reach a certain threshold. Mm -hmm. That's why you're seeing a lot of fintech now is really the mm -hmm. darling of a lot of these uh, large incentive packages. Mm -hmm. What would you leave our audience with, John, related to site selection for a headquarters? What should they think about moving forward? Well, we always say science is both, uh, site selection is both a science and an art. Mm -hmm. The science has to do with measuring business costs, measuring regulations, measuring incentives in one market versus another. And the, the qualitative aspects involved, you know, measuring things like housing mm -hmm. and transportation and the overall tenor of elected officials. Are they pro-business or are they not pro-business? Mm -hmm. And this idea of social impact. And you know, and one, one final thought, I guess, to sum all of this up. Now, companies no longer view site selection merely as moving human capital or moving real estate. They view site selection today as a way to revitalize their brand yeah. and to increase their clout. And, and, and cities are wise to recognize that and incorporate that element into their industry attraction efforts. Yeah, real estate decisions can really boost your company's value, that's for sure. Well, John, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate your information. Thank you. And stay with us. We'll have more on the U.S. office market. I'm Michael Ball. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Are you looking for proven property management and facilities management education? Visit BOMI.org. That's B-O-M-I, Building Owners and Managers Institute International. They are the trusted source for education in the property and facilities industry. Visit BOMI.org. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? 
you're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. The segment's brought to you by BOMI.org. That's B-O-M-I. They are the industry standard for training for facilities and property management. Check them out. Today we're talking about the office sector, the office market, and whether you're a tenant or a landlord, it's been an interesting market with the change in use that we're seeing in the office market. Well, please welcome my next guest, Steve Jelinek, and he's vice president with Morningstar Credit Ratings. He's joining us on the phone. Steve, good to have you on the show again. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well, Steve, I think one of the things that's kind of curious to people uh, right now is the government shutdown and what kind of risk that might bring to some landlords and some properties and, and some lenders with, with loans on these office properties. So if you've got GSA tenants, you've got uh, federal tenants, uh, might your rent just not come in? Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting um, case study, Michael. It's something that we uh, really haven't seen before with the government shutdown or partial shutdown. So what we're um, seeing is, or what we expect, is uh, GSA tenants that have leases in properties, um, you know, in and around Washington, D.C. and other parts of the country, um, they could be susceptible, uh, those properties could be susceptible to um, the uh, rent payments stopping um, should the uh, GSA tenants be part of the shutdown. So it's hard to really say what ultimately may happen. I mean, obviously, the, the landlords are going to get paid once the, um, the, the spigot turns back on. But um, in the meantime, if the, uh, the rent checks stop coming, that would put the, the property owners on the hook for, uh, for making their mortgage payments. So it's kind of anybody's guess, um, you know, how long the, the, um, the shutdown is going to last and, um, you know, which properties may be affected. Um, and don't forget, it also comes down to uh, how much of a particular property's um, rent roll is comprised of, of government tenants. Right. Uh, you know, if they're a smaller percentage, then obviously there shouldn't, should be less to worry about compared to if they make up, you know, um, 30% or more of the, of the, uh, the rent roll, then there might be some concerns down the road. Yeah, that's true, and I guess also the size of the tenant, right? The credit worthiness—I'm sorry of the of the landlord uh, and the credit worthiness of the of the landlord. Can they make up the difference? And if you're listening to the show today, we're, we're doing the show on January 9th. And uh, so let me ask you this, Steve. You know, one of the things that has uh, is, is kind of been a change in the office market is, is companies like WeWork, where you've got. Uh, tenants who don't have, uh, well, at least their tenants, don't have a, a lot of commitments. And some of these um, leases w- with WeWork don't seem to have a lot of security to them in my mind. What kind of risk does that bring a, a lender or investor when they've got these types of tenants? Yeah, I mean, it, it, obviously, uh, you know, WeWork um, could be a, a big risk. Um, it, they're solidly the third largest driver of leasing activity um, nationally, or I should say co-working in general, mm-hmm. uh, whereas WeWork makes up the largest portion of that. Um, we kind of tracked about 12.8 million square feet of co-working um, transactions in 2018. 
Um, and so, obviously, you know, it's, it's a decent chunk of, of the office market. Now, you know, what what the potential risk could be, obviously, um, uh, it's, and that hasn't been tested yet. In the down economy, you know, what's going to happen if WeWork's tenants, you know, move out? Um, most of them are on, you know, month-to-month, you know, quote-unquote leases. Um, and should they move out, then, you know, WeWork's deep pockets are will certainly be tested. Um, but that's kind of, you know, we're looking into our crystal ball. It, it's hard to say exactly, you know, what would happen, but it would, you know, it would depend on WeWork's deep pockets. Um, one of the things that's interesting about WeWork is, you know, A, obviously how much they've expanded. Um, they just leased 54,000 square feet in Phoenix. Um, they bought Lord & Taylor's flagship store in New York, and obviously everybody, most people, investors know that WeWork's the largest um, office tenant in New York City. Um, but something that might also be working against WeWork is kind of the, um, the anti-decentralization of um, large technology firms such as Amazon and Google, Facebook. You know, they rent um, or or buy um, large office properties um, in major cities, uh, and they are less likely to use co-working space. So that's kind of they. It kind of comes down to, you know, these companies believe that you know central offices are 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 the place to go, um, and they believe that. Uh, they, if they want to be, you know, in the uh, markets with the, the best talent, then they need to be in some of the largest cities. Obviously, you know, look at Seattle. Uh, how um, uh, Seattle has been become a big tech hub, and and you know, the, the obviously the, the birth of the industry in um, Silicon Valley. So it's kind of that's kind of the another downside to to WeWork. Yeah. And, you know, this pushed uh, for, from a lot of tenants, and I guess in the market today, where tenants want flexibility and um, they want to be able to, to move or reduce sizes. And a lot of landlords are doing smaller spaces. They're getting spaces ready and giving uh, tenants uh, flexible leases. I, I recently sold a, a small building for around $3.5 million, and all the tenants were, were small, smaller and they all had very short leases. A lot of them were just year to year. And, I, and then when we were financing that, you know, a lot of lenders would look at it and go, oh, there's, no, there's only 10% of the, the building leased over three years? I can't check that box. Uh, as that type of office environment continues to grow, Steve, how, how is that going to impact the security for these notes and, and for these properties that... Uh, you know, have all these short-term leases. As you said, we haven't had a, a big downturn with this type of tenant situation. How do you weigh it just on, on regular office buildings that they don't have WeWork tenants? Yeah, well, um, as, as leases shorten in their duration, that's something that, that the CMBS market is going to have to deal with. Right now, we, we don't see a whole lot of short-term leases, um, at least in the CMBS market, where we're dealing with, with larger loans. What we've seen is, you know, a flight to quality where, you know, uh, Class A properties are um, being more in, are seeing more demand compared to Class B properties. But you know, the, the risk is there with, with smaller tenants. It, it's something that, that if, uh, if we do see an increase in the securitization of office properties with um, tenants with uh, shorter-term leases, 
that's something that you know we would have to. CMBS is usually really good at, at getting additional collateral uh, mm-hmm. for these types of um, arrangements yeah. in, in, in terms of additional reserves, for instance, mm-hmm. or guarantees from the borrower. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's it's something worth noting in the securitization area, but not something that, that we've seen a huge growth of. Okay. We're talking with Steve Jelinek with Morningstar Credit Ratings. And so, Steve, how does... How do you guys, and how's the market kind of look at the office sector uh, moving forward? Does it look like a pretty safe sector? So over the past year, um, kind of looking at the office sector nationally, we've seen it be pretty stable in terms of, you know, there's always risk with vacancies, which has been edging up. <clears throat> um, values overall have been stabilizing and in the few markets they've actually been following a little bit with rent growth in those markets flatlining and absorption has been flat to negative in those markets. Um, the, the better performing markets obviously are the ones that are have uh, kind of are in uh, in tune with the uh, attracting large the large digital tenants, if you will, the large technology tenants like San Jose. Uh, some might even uh, wouldn't probably recognize Huntsville, Alabama, or Ann Arbor, Michigan, as being um, you know among that group. But they they actually are, and they're they're actually growing. Some of the riskier cities that we might take a look at are um, Hartford, Connecticut. And Indianapolis, as well as Kansas City, and one of the other things that we're that we're really watching, kind of industry wide, is kind of the whole macroeconomic picture. Interest rates rising, and that that's kind of starting to weigh on um, on um, borrowing uh, and and the uh, the national the national cap rate. Um, it's been pretty stable over the past few years, um, but with the the treasury rates rising um, obviously means higher borrowing costs um, and less room for error. So kind of with cap rates remaining stable, borrowing costs rising, we've seen some compressed margins. And up until probably a couple months ago, we've seen the um, additional uh, competition from lenders kind of mitigate rising interest rates. But lately, with the margins compressing to the point where they really haven't been since the crisis of about 10 years ago, what we're probably going to end up seeing is a pullback by lenders, which could signal you know, a drop in, in supply um, and, and a, drop, a drop in supply of, um, of lending, that is, and um, potentially a drop in, in valuations as well. So, but nothing extreme. Um, just kind of, I think that the market kind of checking itself and maybe edging back down a little bit. Okay. And Steve, if you look at the the large uh, sectors of office retail, you know, multifamily and industrial, um, how does office sector uh, rank with those other sectors related to safety and, and interest from investors today? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, office is going to be uh, one of the more riskier Risky sectors, uh, when in, uh, in an environment that, an economic environment that we're in now, with uh, interest rates rising, um, and companies potentially pulling back their hiring. You know, the economic environment is where it stands right now. Is is obviously the the market is very healthy. 
Um, but companies are going to be pulling back with, uh, since we're near full employment and interest rates rising and they're going to be, and wages are, ri- are rising as well. So with the um, companies potentially hiring fewer employees, office compared to multifamily is going to be riskier. Um, multifamily we kind of see as kind of more stable and kind of a, a, a beneficiary of, of a rising rate environment. And retail, everybody kind of kind of sees retail. A lot of people see retail as 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 being you know the next uh, or kind of being under an, an, an apocalypse. And we really don't see that. Um, even with Sears potentially folding, I believe they have a um, another uh, liquidation hearing or, or auction hearing um, next Monday. Even with Sears potentially folding, we don't see retail as being as as bad as as most people predict. So, but in the scheme of things, you know, Avis is going to be a little bit more risky as we move ahead in this economic cycle. More so than retail. Um, I believe so. Well, that's interesting. Well, Steve, uh, great information as usual. Thank you for joining us today. Okay. Glad to be with you, Michael. All right. Well, stay with us. We'll have more on the office market. I'm Michael Ball. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Have you seen BuyProxy.com? Brokers list properties, buyers and tenants search properties all at no cost. They also have a suite of marketing services. Check them out at BuyProxy.com. That's spelled B-I-P-R-O-X-I.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about office market, office use, office properties. This segment's brought to you by RedIQ.com. This is an interesting company. They extract data from static property operating reports and they transform it into actionable intelligence. So check them out at RedIQ.com. Like I said, we're talking about office environment. And I think one of the things that's really been impacting the office market and the office sector is the cost of construction. You know, we look at some of these build-outs and a build-out that maybe costs 70 or $80 a foot is 100 a foot or maybe something less, but it's really impacting whether companies move or not and, and, and the construction cost is kind of a moving target. Well, we have an expert here for you today to give us some ideas of how to manage this is Francina Price and she's president with Champions IFM and she's in Studio One with us. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you, Michael, for having me. So from your desk, you guys help uh, companies with their real estate project management and, and building out spaces and, 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 and every day. Are you seeing an impact? Are your clients concerned? Are they impacted by these kind of rising costs for construction and labor? Yes, materials? we're definitely seeing an impact. Um, over the last probably two years, there's been a significant jump in cost. I think a big part of that is due to lack of um, resources that are in the market. There's so many jobs going on, and it's so little people sometimes, you know, to fulfill those roles. And so mm-hmm. For our clients, it is making a big difference. We're seeing a lot of maybe um, space reduction instead of relocation, where they're just trying to stay in place to kind of avoid some of the cost. And in other cases, they're having to bite the bullet or or even delay the relocation process, maybe push it out a year in order to plan better, um, to, to put some more resources together in order to make that relocation. But definitely 20% 
you know, cost is, is definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I think we, we see some clients that uh, when they're looking to renew their lease or, or look at new space, they get some sticker shock. Yeah. You know, in some markets, like we're in Atlanta here today, and, uh, you know, we've had higher rate increases for office properties uh, in the last several years than we've ever had historically. Yeah. Now you add the <laughs> increased construction costs and the, you know, the CEO and the CFO are like, wait a minute, you know, what am I going to do? Well, what can, is, is the increasing cost for Encina, is it mainly in, in labor or is it also materials? What? Some of it is materials, but a lot of it is labor. Some mm -hmm. of it is the labor. Um, some of the things that we're doing to try to help with that is just, you know, give a full scope of the project. So we're looking at ways that maybe we can reduce cost in other areas of the job. It may not be the LHI piece that is getting reduced significantly, um, maybe changing if they want glass fronts. We might go with, um, you know, tell them they need to use drywall or we look at some dirt products, some mm -hmm. furniture wall product or, you know, just kind of looking for multiple ways to put the job together in order to give them um, a better product and also get their costs down. And I think to help them, they do have to do the preliminary planning you know, sometimes the client just kind of throws a number out there and they think, you know, that's what it's going to cost. You do really have to do your due diligence and come up with a, a number of concepts of the way you want to, you know, maybe it's a storefront glass instead of just, you know, full glass. Or maybe it's dirt walls instead of drywall or drywall. Instead, you just have to run your scenarios. Right. But we are looking for ways to try to, you know, streamline that cost as much as possible. Francina, when you're working uh, today on a lengthy project that takes a, a year or more to, to complete, are you building in any uh, potential increases in construction costs over the term of the project? Well, some of that we do at the RFP stage mm -hmm. is try to get the vendors to lock in their cost try to estimate if there are any particular manufacturers that might be having a cost increase due to um, tariffs. Mm -hmm. uh, right now in the furniture industry, so to speak, there are some tariff changes with some products that are shipping um, in. It should have taken place already, but it hasn't. And so we do try to plan for that, um, even on the construction side, maybe glass. You know, maybe there's certain flooring product that the customer might want. But in the typical items, um, those typically don't have a lot of um, impact, and we do try to get the pricing locked in yeah. based on the proposal. Yeah. Well, you mentioned tariffs. That that brings to mind, I think, the uh, <laughs> the partial shutdown. As we talk today, what are we in day 31 or so yeah. as we record our, our session here today? Are you seeing an impact yet with your clients or your business from the partial shutdown? Not yet, mm -hmm. um, other than delays at the airport, right? So we all are familiar with delays at the airport, but there's a little bit of a larger delay because there are less TSA workers that are working. But for the most part, clients are still moving along and looking for ways to offer great workspaces, right? Great collaborative community, communal environments for their, their staff or their employees but at a more affordable cost. So, I mean, it's still out there. What are you seeing for trends uh, with your clients related to open uh, space for some private offices. I know everybody was, has been really going to the open space, and we've had a few clients who said, hey, 
Uh, because the job market's getting a little tougher, uh, you know, we're, we're going to also do some private office. What do you see from your desk? Um, I'm seeing both. I'm seeing how do you integrate the two concepts. Before, yes, it was open, open, open. Now, uh, clients probably last year started pulling more back to we do need to have some more private offices and um, we also need that collaborative communal space. Um, partly because they want to attract younger generation workers. So in order to get some of the younger generation workers into your space, you need that more collaborative communal space. But in order to maintain that tenured experience worker, you want to have more private space as well. And so I think you're starting to see um, spaces go back to, you know, how to balance that. And they're doing that with they're doing that with some of their programming. So it's it's what qualifies for open space and how do we qualify it from a change management perspective versus you know, we have this many offices and this many, you know, open workspaces. So yeah. it's more change management, getting involved. Where's the company going? And how do we make sure that when we build out our space, we, we're able to support that in three years from now? Right. And you know, one of the big items for corporate office users today is flexibility, right? So mm -hmm. are you seeing any interesting ways that uh, clients are putting the ability to change their space uh, into these plans? Some of the dirt walls, you know, not building out so many um, hard walls where you got to actually demolition. You know, it's full demolition and you got to pay costs for that. Dirt, dirt walls. So you bring some it's dirt, a, mud, water, and you just form it. Huh? No, it's a furniture product. It's a furniture wall. <laughs> right. So um, not to advertise for them, right? <laughs> but it's just a good product and yeah. it's well known. It's mm -hmm. it, it makes for a lot of flexible workspace. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's really um aesthetically pleasing. You can have any kind of look you want. So some people are doing that and others are calling shared space or collaborative spaces, building them out, knowing that maybe they might drop a storefront on it one day if they need it for an office, a private office, but building it consistent in sizing. Yeah. So that could be easily converted where it has two walls around it. And all you really have to do is drop in a glass storefront or, you know, a door yeah. with a side light and some drywall. And now you have an office. So. And Francina, if someone is building out space and they're using kind of the traditional walls in a build out and then they compared that price with using more furniture or these products that that create a lot of flexibility for them, is the furniture route more expensive? No, not always. It, okay. it depends on the ratio of lineal feet. Right. Mm -hmm. So some of that could be comprehensive. Another thing you can do is negotiate that. See, you don't get to negotiate drywall. <laughs> you know, the, the, the actual drywall yeah. sheets. Right. Yeah. But with furniture, you if you know that you're you're planning a certain number of offices, it has a certain concept you're trying to make. You can go to the manufacturer and start having some negotiations about price points and start negotiating that where you can get a contract set up so that if you're going to build out that space, you're leveraging, um, you know, your upcoming projects. And you're saying, I'm, I'm willing to commit to you know, X, just like you would on chairs or right. desk or, right. and I just encourage companies to do that due diligence from a purchasing, yeah. you know, standpoint, it just gives them buying power. Yeah. And I, I like the idea of, of using furniture and, you know, walls and things that you can move around and mm -hmm. create flexibility mm -hmm. because, you know, that that's real important to a company that can, can move uh, with the changing needs, right? Yes. Yes. What have you seen, Francina, that it's been interesting uh, lately since you were here in, in the build out. And you know, in our office, we have a, a billiard room and uh, <laughs> we have a TV radio studio in our, our office. Uh, what do you see out there that you, that's kind of new? 
I haven't seen anything really new. Uh, you know, the, the collaborative spaces are still, I did go to an event and somebody had a hospital bed set up in one of their showrooms mm -hmm. in order to market the fact that they provide services to healthcare vendors. Okay. And I thought the use of that was really, you know, really cool and how they were displaying and using their space. I am seeing clients want to have seamless lines between what is public space and what is private space, meaning they're trying to invite their customer into using their workspace and working from their space, um, as well as them living and occupying, occupying the space. So it's this new concept. I think it, a lot of it comes a little bit more West Coast maybe concept, but they're trying to draw a very seamless line. Whereas if you're a client and you're having to be in their space and work in their space, it's not our space and you know the, the, the space that all the customers come to. Right. So they're trying to, to blend that. I'm curious to how it's all going to turn out. Yeah. Uh, Want to be a part of that process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm seeing this more. How do we share the space? Right. Well, we have a lot of uh, listeners and viewers uh, on the on the West Coast in California. So give us a comment. Let us know what you think. Um, last question for you. As you are talking to these corporate users every day, um, what are you seeing as a trend re related to wellness? You know, I think wellness in, in my view for my clients uh, is extremely important. Mm -hmm. are, are, are you seeing uh, users, are you seeing your clients have an interest in, more interest in or, or, or are you surprised that they're not interested? What do you say? I think it depends on the client. Um, some of them are incorporating it within their spaces. Some of them are looking for buildings that already offer that amenity or maybe surrounding, you know, businesses or buildings that may have it. Or even if there's a gym up the street mm -hmm. that's within three to five miles from their from their office. Yeah. So I think customers are concerned about overall wellness. Mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing a lot of relaxation rooms and environments where mm -hmm. people can go and have quiet time. So that's something people are interested. Time out, time out. Yeah, time, time out, time. You know, just kind of yeah. quiet rooms, more yeah. of a meditation or yeah. quiet or prayer or whatever you call it. But it's yeah. just kind of a personal space. Um, I well, think I, it's just if, as important. Well, if we have one of those and I see some of my brokers in there, medit I'm going to go in there and yell, get back to work, get back to work. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. I'll be amazed. They might need that they moment. They might need that moment. Or maybe something personal yeah. happened, yeah, right? That's true. And they're just trying yeah. to adjust in order to get back yeah. to work. So. Well, when we worked on a big deal for a year and it falls through, it's pretty personal. <laughs> it's very personal. It's definitely personal. Francina, thank you very much thank for your information. You. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure as always. All right. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by BullRealty.com, commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions. RedIQ.com, turning data into valuable action. ByProxy.com, a complimentary listing service. CommercialAgentSuccess.com, video training from Michael Bull. Bomi.org, property and facility management education. To access these recommended companies or for more podcasts and videos, visit CREshow.com.